so wonderful to come and see the building. I, I know you've been here a couple of months. I just think, wow, maybe it's me. They just see more people. Great to see other people from the community that you're connecting with outside, which is absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure if the sermon gets boring, you can count how many bits there are up the wall. There's lots of colourful stuff in there just for us to connect. It is a real joy to be journeying with you guys on faith and just seeing how things have come. I think over the last two years, it's not been easy for any church, and I know you guys are up and planted and just taking a faith step. I wanted to preach on faith this morning, this afternoon, and I'll be honest, I felt a bit challenged as I was prepping it. Uh, please, every church is different. I don't want us to get into church comparison games. Uh, we'd baptised um, some folk in October at Redeemer Church, which is in Ealing. Uh, and I thought, oh, wow, it must be post-COVID. You know what I'm saying? Lots of people are coming forward to get baptised, which was really excited. We baptised seven people in October. And then we'd done another baptism this morning. And uh, we had another seven want to get baptised today. And uh, I felt God just challenged me on my faith. Because I just thought it was a result of COVID that something had happened in October. And God says, why do you limit what I could do? And I just want us today to come and say, who knows what God could do with this place? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's been a battle of faith, hasn't it, in the last two years? But actually, we want to come, don't we, as those that believe God, that trust God. Who knows what God could do? Father, as we come and look at your word this afternoon, Lord, take out our small thinking and put in your, your thinking. Oh, forgive us when... As finite building people, we try and understand an infinite God. Forgive us. Lord, help us to come and realize we're caught up in your story. You're building your church. You've been doing this through thousands of years. And so we do want to come this afternoon and say, God, would you take away things that we doubt and instead put faith in Jesus' name Amen. Right, we're going to read uh, a passage, uh, quite a few verses, to be honest, from uh, Genesis, Old Testament, first book of the Bible. It means beginning, start. There's a famous guy, Abraham. In fact, many people around the world now would consider him a father of faith. And uh, I thought I'd just like to read a little bit about this chapter and then bring some points of application to it. So it's Genesis 22, I'm going to read 19 verses. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey, while I and the boy go over there. 
We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He replied, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is a shocking, shocking passage of the Bible, isn't it? Look, if you've never come to church before, you're unlikely to come back after someone's read that. You think, what kind of place is this? If we've heard it many times before, maybe we've lost the shock. Let me ask you a question. Are you full of faith this afternoon? It's easy to be sarcastic. It's easy to doubt. It's easy not to believe. Let's be honest, there's so much fake news around now, we're not sure what to believe anyway, are we? I know that uh, Owen is a Bible teacher, loves to give you the solid word. I bet if I asked those who came to church regularly, how do you, what would you say about faith? You'd all jump to Hebrews 11 and say, faith is confidence in what we hope for. I think there's a difference between knowing a definition and how do we live it. Jesus himself, and I wish we had time, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, often brings this challenge of where is your faith? 
In Mark chapter 2, he sees the faith of the friends that are carrying the paralyzed man and they, they bust a hole in the roof, don't they? And they lay there, the, the guy on his bed comes down and Jesus says, I see your faith and heals him. Jesus loves the faith and responds. And yet only two chapters later, when Jesus and the disciples have, have been in a boat and there's been a storm and they wake him up and say, don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus says to the wind and the waves, be calm. And then he says to his disciples, do you still doubt? Why don't you believe? You know, the very next chapter, there is a woman who's pushing through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment. She's been bleeding for 12 years. She's miraculously healed. Jesus turns around. What does he say? Your faith. He's loved it, hasn't he? And yet the very next chapter, he's in his hometown. And he can't do many miracles because they wouldn't believe. Jesus just seems to have this sort of challenge, doesn't he? Will you believe or will you not? Chapter 10 of Mark, there's, there's this blind man and he's crying out, and he's crying out. And Jesus says, hey, I see your faith, I'll heal you. He, he teaches his disciples in chapter 11 of Mark, hey, if you believe, you could throw this mountain into the sea. I don't get that, but he's teaching them the importance of faith, isn't he? The last chapter of Mark, chapter 16, he rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. I sometimes think, which side of the pendulum would I be on? If Jesus was to look at me today, well, I confessed my sin before I started preaching. He said to me, Pete, why are you not believing for something bigger? Where might you be? Maybe you think, I don't believe at all, and we love having you here. You might be on a journey, and you're asking questions. And maybe you think, golly, over this pandemic, I've just started discovering who this Jesus is. That is fantastic. We do small groups. We call them meetups. And uh, this term, you can, you can sign up for lots of different ones. We did one on the, a study of the book of Matthew. And we're based, uh, I say, our meetings in the University of West London. Anyway, it just so happened that this Jewish guy wanted to do a study in the book of Matthew, and he saw that this was arranged by the University of West London. Didn't like to put him right there. Anyway, he's now become a believer in the Messiah. Because who knows what God could do? I never thought something like that. The Bible often challenges us about faith. And the Bible is not some textbook, is it? There's a story. And so with that in mind, I want us to approach this chapter, chapter 22, and look at Abraham, the man of faith. This is baffling, isn't it? Hey, I mean, I'd like to think, oh, come on, let's be radical and let's believe. But what about the shock the confusion. Let's be honest, today, you only know it really happens if you've got a photograph. Is that right? Isn't that what social media is all about? Hey, give us the picture and then we know the event occurred. The Renaissance were 400 years ahead of social media. They were painting pictures of these kind of scenes a long time ago. Here's one of a sacrifice by Isaac. This was painted in 1603. I believe it should be coming up there, here. The angel is like interrupting Abraham as he's got this knife out. I bet Abraham never forgot that day. 
Where were you on 9-11? I remember I was on a training course in Brighton. I remember coming out of the course, turning on my phone, and then suddenly you hear this news. And I thought, oh, phone, Nicky, can you believe it? You know, the whole thing was America's been attacked. I'll never forget that. I don't think Abraham would ever have forgotten this day. It is a very tough test set by God. It is anti-common sense. It is against all human affection of a father for their son. It's opposed to his lifetime ambition. It appears contrary to human reason and divine promise. Should we just pause here for a moment? I believe God tests, but he does not tempt. I think there's a difference. I think when you're tested, there's an opportunity to prove that you love God. When you're tempted, it's an opportunity to sin. And I believe here that Abraham is given an opportunity to demonstrate his love and devotion for God. The NIV application written by uh, John Walton says, God tests us not by trying to make us miserable, but by disrupting our comfort zone, thus forcing us to rely on him. Sometimes I think my biggest obstacle to faith is my comfort. Do I need to trust God? If God does nothing for me this week, am I okay anyway? Abraham demonstrates a submissive, humble heart. You would have seen that phrase there, it came twice. Here I am. We know in the Bible that that is a, a sense of surrender to Almighty God. We know that when Moses was out with the sheep and suddenly he sees this bush that's on fire and God reveals himself. What does Moses say? Here I am. We know, don't you, when Samuel was the boy that was woken at night and thinks his master's calling him and he keeps going back and back and eventually his master says, no, no, it's God. What does he say? He says, here I am. Abraham doesn't say it once, he says it twice. He says it before the test and after the test. A submissive, surrendered heart. I've just got a few things I'd like to bring out that I think we can learn about faith from the life of Abraham. The first thing is this, faith listens. God speaks, Abraham listens. Let's say that again. God speaks, Abraham listens. Faith starts with what God says, not what I feel. I can feel pumped and on top of the world. I love baptism. Do you see? It's good I'm coming to preach this afternoon because I'm up. If it had been a horrible morning, I could have been scraping the floor. But if my faith is only based on my last experience, where do I go? Or if my faith is based upon what God says. God says you're a child of God. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're adopted. You have an inheritance. You think, wow. Faith listens to God. Faith obeys. Abraham is quick to obey. It tells us in the passage, early the next morning. Think about that. Early the next morning. I don't know about you, I try and understand, you know, these passages, I read myself into them. I think, was he, was he trying to get out before his wife was awake? I mean, if I'd have heard God say, kill this boy, I'm not sure I'd have told my wife, we have a son called Isaac. Or was it just prompt obedience? 
God says, I'll do it. You see, if I'd have heard something like this, I'd have put it to the bottom of the to-do list, wouldn't you? And it may well have rolled over a month or two. I'd have thought, I need to bring it to Owen and the leaders of the church and let them weigh on it. But for him, faith obeys. Faith plans. I love this. If you read the story, there's so many details in there. Abraham said to the servants after they've traveled for three days, what's he going to do? He's going to sacrifice his son. So he says to the two servants with the animal, stay here. We will go there. We will worship. We will come back. But I thought you were just about to kill the boy. That is a faith statement. He speaks faith. I found Job a really challenging book. I don't know how often you've sung that song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. He gives and takes away. I guess that's often the faith of Job. God gives and God takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Abraham seems to say the Lord gives. The Lord takes away. But I believe that God will give back. That's his faith. He makes this plan. Faith speaks. I mean, there's this elephant in the room, isn't there? They've got wood, they've got fire, they've got a knife. But where is the sacrifice? He speaks faith to his son. Your words, are they doubt-causing or faith-giving? I'm glad I'm preaching and it's not my wife because she could say, oh, well, you're a different story. I'd like to say, come on, let's believe God. Do I cause my wife, my kids, my church to believe or do I cause them to doubt? Faith acts. I would rather faith thinks, I would rather faith reasons, I'd rather faith discusses. But faith acts. It says in this passage, doesn't it? Abraham took the knife to slay his son. Isaac is bound and placed on the altar. Hebrews 11 tells us this. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Wow! This New Testament author who wrote the book of Hebrews, he's saying, well, actually, if we look back, Abraham acted in faith. James also refers to this in the book of James. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together. And now I guess the danger is we could say, oh, golly, Pete, that's quite an interesting sermon. Okay, so I understand this. Faith thinks, plans, speaks, acts. But if Abraham was stood here this afternoon and he said to you, I want you to learn one lesson on faith, what would it be? Well, I'm not making this up because I think he gives us a clue in the passage. You see, Abraham, the man of faith, has listened, he's obeyed, he's planned, he's spoken, and he's acted. But what did he call the event? 
I mean, if it was me and this was a chapter in my life, I might say, I survived. I might have said, I believed. (laughs) I obeyed. I might have even said, God provided. But Abraham uses none of those titles. What does he do? Look at it. He says, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. You see, I would like to suggest this, that faith of Abraham is the faith that sees. Faith that sees. I would say this whole chapter is describing a a picture of someone who believes, but they are looking forward. Now, just bear with me as, as I try and unpack this for you. Having described what happens, he talks about what their descendants plural, will do. He says, doesn't he, your your descendants will take cities. So he's talking about your people inheriting. But how will it happen? He says, through your offspring, singular, in verse 18. You see, we can't take this chapter out of context. The whole book of Genesis has been about the fact that in the beginning, God, God created, and they sinned, and it all messed up, and Adam and Eve had this thing, and then actually in chapter 3, God said, look, there will come a seed. Acts, uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, seed, and his Hers, he will crush your head and you will... Oh, so what they'd understood right from the beginning of Genesis is one will come that will be a saviour. And Abraham, in this moment of faith, is still looking for the one that will save. You might say, Pete, you're reading a lot into that, aren't you? It's good to ask questions. No, Galatians 3 in the New Testament says this, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to his seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. Oh, so he obviously understood something right then. Oh, I'm looking forward to one that the Lord will provide. The longer I look at the passage, it's almost like the clearer it becomes. I know Sean's hidden in the background here. Sean and, and Liz and Nick and I were due to meet up a couple of weeks ago, and I booked one of these treasure trails around London. Now, I love London, you know. I mean, obviously, Wokingham fields are great, but if you really want a taste of heaven, come to Ealing. <laughs> if you wander around Ealing, I think it's great. You wander around London, you discover all these things. Oh, I'd never spotted that detail, that detail, that detail. I thought we'd have two hours of an afternoon of discovering all these facts, and we'd just go, whoa, what a great city to live in. Okay, that's the end of my plug. But actually, I think that's true of this passage. I think we need to wander around and say, hey, God, what are you saying here, here, and here? I I thought I'd read a story about a father killing his son. But actually, what I'm now beginning to do is discover, hey, he talked about a seed. Well, oh, that's something bigger. As I was reading it, some of you would have picked up. It talks about your son, your only son. Whom you love. You might not come to church very often. This might be your first time. Welcome. Please come back. Give Owen a chance next week. 
For some of us, the first verse we'd ever heard from the Bible was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. You see, this language is surely pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Another clue is found in the place where they're to go, Moriah. Moriah was a 45-mile journey, they reckon, from where Abraham and Isaac started. If you're a runner, that's 72 kilometers, because we know kilometers sound more impressive than miles. He traveled a long way. What do we know about this place? Well, we know from 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, that this is where Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. Oh, so I just thought this was a place that he had to go. And then I suddenly discovered in Scripture that this is where the judgment was stopped because David made a sacrifice. And this was then the place where they built the temple that the sacrifice would be repeatedly made for the people so that God's wrath wouldn't come. Oh, I'm beginning to see a bigger picture. Luke 23. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on the left. Many commentators think that Moriah had been changed by the Romans into this place. And actually, oh, this father was going to kill his son there. That's a picture of sacrifice, which I then see in the temple and then points to the cross. Even the phrase, they got there the third day. See, if we read the book in its context, we understand that the third day was when a period of testing was over. Joseph, when he was in prison... He answered, he, um, it says on Genesis 40, verse 20, the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief baker and the chief, the, the cupbearer and the baker in the presence of his officials. Oh, wow. So they'd had this dream. They'd spoken to Joseph. On the third day, something happened. So when it tells us in the passage on the third day, it says, take note. This is another clue. We know that when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 4, he says that he was buried, this is Jesus Christ, but he was raised on the third day, according to scriptures. So what I suddenly get now is it's not just this story of a father that had something. Oh no, this is the gospel story that I'm beginning to understand. I love the picture, don't you? There, It's the bottom of the mountain, I think. It says that he takes the wood off the animal, leaves the servant, and places it upon the shoulders of his son, who carries it up. Is that not a picture of Jesus in John 19, who carrying his own cross went out to the place of the skull? which in Aramaic is called God. Oh, here's Isaac, the son, carrying this wood to his place of sacrifice. Where does that point us to? Even the fact that they talk about, oh, where's this lamb? 
In Isaiah, we know that it talks prophetically about he was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. They were looking for one. this sense of sacrifice. It's not just, oh, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? When Jesus goes to get baptized, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John says. I know I'm in the presence of Bible scholars. I know that you guys want to look at this seriously. Think about it. When they look up, the ram is caught in a thicket. I don't want to over-push this, but I'll try just for a minute. Caught by thorns around its head. A crown of thorns Matthew Henry would say. And yet we know that is totally true of Jesus himself in John 19, verse 2. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. Oh, the more details I'm putting together, the clearer this picture becomes. That picture I showed you right at the beginning, I don't know if you noted, it was right at the bottom. Isaac, in most of these photos, paintings, from the Renaissance, is virtually naked. Because actually it was a lot to do with a sense of innocence. The danger is we can think, oh, big old Abraham takes small little Isaac and makes him. Yet Isaac carried the wood. We know that actually Abraham was an old man. I told you I have a son, Isaac. Isaac, my son, worked out at the gym four times a week. I don't, surprise, surprise. When he was four, we used to bundle because I always won. We don't bundle anymore because I know I'm going to lose. Jewish tradition, this is Jewish tradition, it's not in the Bible, Jewish tradition used to think that Isaac was 37 when this event occurred. 37 is what they said. Now, I'm not going to say how old he was, but what I would like to suggest is that Isaac submitted to the plan of the father. And where does that take us? Isaac submitted to the plan of the Father. Seems a horrible question even to ask. What can be worse than somebody asking you to kill your son? What could be worse than somebody asking you to kill your son? I say the only thing worse is actually allowing your son to die. When Isaac is laid upon the altar, Abraham gets out this knife and slays. There is a shout from heaven. Yet when Jesus is on the cross, there is silence. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, that's where the picture takes us. God says to Abraham, now I know that you fear me. 
And yet we can say to God, following the death of Jesus on the cross, now I know you love me. This is a massive gospel picture which must stir and challenge our faith. The son, though sinful, was spared. The guilty does not die. The animal takes his place. The Bible says we are guilty. We face death for our sin, but Jesus took our place. Jesus himself says this in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you ask me, the Bible is written in two parts. Not the Old and the New Testament. I would say the first part of the Bible is Genesis 1 to 11. I would say it lays the foundations of the Bible. God created, we've sinned, we need help. And that actually from there on we work out what I would call the gospel story. We see that in the book of Genesis. We see it with this dysfunctional family that they're not the hero but God always is. We then see that through the rest of the book right until the end. See, we also are caught up in a bigger gospel story. Abraham, how did he remember this occasion? He focused upon the God who provided. I want to encourage your faith, not by saying, oh, could you believe someone's going to turn up at your group and get done? Could you believe by the next time I come, you've baptized eight, one more than me? I'm saying, could you fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ and what he has done? Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 8, and says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I want to encourage your faith. Not by what you can do if you really try hard enough. Not by, oh, wow, you know, what Owen could do. I want to encourage your faith by looking to Jesus and what he has done for you. I know that we're going to be breaking bread together. At least I believe we are. The symbols are here behind. I have one last picture, which I'm sure they've put up right now. And I just want to read a song to you. I feel that this summarizes the whole message that I've brought. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many 
sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom.